Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with David Lurson, co-author of the book, War on the Silver Screen, Shaping America's Perception of History. The book was published by Potomac Books in 2014. In the book, David and his co-author, Glenn Johnson, discuss a number of films that deal with 20th century conflicts. Beginning with World War I, the so-called War to End All Wars, through the present War on Terror, the authors review how each film dealt with the issues of the particular war, the people who fought the war, and the society affected by the war. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Lurson. Welcome, David. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Very good. I'm glad you had a chance to talk to me. Uh, The book is very interesting, and Bottom line is, war has been a popular subject for film since the earliest days of motion pictures. So, and your book reviews a number of films arranged specifically by conflict. Uh, that's the order or the the method you use to organize the book. Uh, but before we get into the book itself, can you give me your background? Uh, have you written other material related to film as well? Uh, yes, my uh, previous book was a biography of Ruben Mamoulian, uh, a film director, very innovative film director from the 1930s and 40s. He did one of the first truly successful uh, talking pictures called Applause, successful because the, 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 the movie actually moved around. The, the earliest talking pictures were very static because of the cumbersome technology. He figured ways around that. He directed the first uh, full-length feature uh, color film in Technicolor later on during the 1930s. So th- th- this this was not uh, the, the War Movies book, War on the Silver Screen, is not my first film book. But uh, I, I am primarily a, a, a cultural historian by education. And whether I'm writing a biography of a, of a filmmaker or a political figure or uh, delving into some other historical topic, or looking at films, as I did in this book, I'm always trying to understand the culture around the people and the events, uh, trying to figure out what shapes the people, what shapes the, the movies, what shapes the books that people were reading, and then what influences this uh, in turn had on, on the uh, society around the people and books and films. Okay. Um, well, what came? What made you decide that this was the subject you wanted to write about next? Uh, and what kind of research did you have to perform to decide which films to include? Well, Glenn, my my partner in this, uh, conceived the idea of uh, of doing a book on how America remembers uh, its wars through the movies made about them. So uh, I can't take credit for the idea. He came to me with the idea. We, we have written, uh, co-written a couple of books in the past, including a biography of Elvis Presley. So we came up with the idea, and uh, I began uh, thinking about how to go about this. 
I don't remember if it was his thought or my thought that we should begin the book with World War One, uh, because the creation of Hollywood, the beginnings of Hollywood coincided with uh, World War One. It was all, World War One was also the first war in which uh, really technically proficient films were being made during the war about the war. Uh, the Spanish-American War, for example, there were actually a couple of really short so-called documentaries being made at the time on that war, but they were very primitive, and uh, the circulation of them wasn't very wide, and nobody remembers them anyway. So World War I seemed to be a very good place uh, to begin the project. From that point on, uh, I, I chose the movies that we focused on in the book. I chose them because they were movies that, that uh, I really enjoyed. For one thing, I didn't want to spend a great deal of time uh, writing a book uh, about movies I didn't like, but uh, the more important factor than my own taste was whether these movies really do still resonate in our society today, whether when we think about World War One or World War Two or Vietnam, whether, you know, these movies actually, you know, help shape our imagination. And there are many fine movies, war movies, that were not included in the book, uh, because I don't think that people, by and large, remembered them very well. It was interesting that, especially with World War One, the first two movies that you uh, covered in the book, All Quiet on the Western Front and Paths of Glory, were basically very, I don't want to use the word anti-war, but they certainly had their attitude towards war that we didn't necessarily always, we don't necessarily always see with war movies. And in fact, some of the other ones on your list are much different in tone, but it, it is so interesting that those first two, uh, even though they're separated by a number of years, um, All Quiet on the Western Front came out in between the two wars. And clearly you could tell it, it, it covered the, the book very well. It, it, it acquitted itself very well in relation to the book. Uh, what was it about All Quiet on the Western Front in particular that you felt made for such a great first movie to discuss? Well, it is the first World War One movie that still is part of the, the cultural DNA of, of nowadays. Uh, even people who have never seen the movie somehow know about it. I mean, anybody who really cares about uh, movies or about war, I guess, and, and they put it that way, has heard about All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, many people may have seen snippets of it in documentaries about historical filmmaking. And somehow the, the name is out there in people's minds. But also, I, I think it in many ways sets a template for how uh, future filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick with Paths of Glory, how, how do you depict something uh, as, as horrifying as, as trench warfare on the Western Front? Uh, all quiet, set the standards for that. And to, and to your point about, about both of these movies being anti-war, and a, a third movie in the World War One chapter, Gallipoli, can also be seen as being kind of an anti-war movie. Yeah, World War One is not a movie that, that many people could look back upon nostalgically. I mean, it, it, it was a extremely bloody conflict fought for reasons that had, had nothing to do really with great moral imperatives, with a you know, uh, treaty system in Europe, uh, political uh, jockeying for power on the European continent. Uh, many other countries around the world got dragged into into the war for one reason or another. Uh, casualties were, were heavy. Uh, the conditions of war were bad. 
not only for troops on the front line, but in Europe for the civilian population as well. So unlike World War II, where, where you can certainly see a, a right versus wrong, a forces of light versus forces of darkness, uh, World War I was a very murky conflict from, from any kind of ethical standpoint, and a very most unpleasant conflict, very all-encompassing for the societies involved with it. And, yeah, I, I think the war left a very bitter taste in the mouths of the participants and the memories of their descendants. And as a consequence, it's very difficult to imagine a... a, a, a uh, uh, pro-war, World War I uh, film being made. Yeah, it's, uh, the funny part about it is it actually got remade as a television movie in the 1970s. Yes. seemed, uh, when I, I've taught 20th century world history before, and when we come to, you know, early on with World War I, I went, I had to make a decision. I really wanted to show one of the films, and even though I wished I had had the guts, so to speak, to go back and show the 1930 version. I ended up showing the television version, which unfortunately, obviously, as we know, is not anything like the first one. But it's still much of the uh, the ideas that came through quite well, even with that one. Uh, but yeah, the nice thing about the 1930 version is that it's still available in good condition as we know with films, especially old films, little by little, a lot of those early ones are, are tough to find if they haven't been properly preserved. So thankfully, All Quiet on the Western Front is still around and in, in good condition for people to see it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, great, great work has been done in film preservation, digitalizing uh, old movies, but of course, we, we, we've... Uh, Lost quite a few early films. Uh, you know, we've never not recovered them. They deteriorated or disappeared altogether. Fortunately, all quiet on the Western Front. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't delve into the theatrical release history of the movie, but I, I imagine that that film stayed in circulation for a number of years, one way or another, after its release. And uh, partly because of that reason, it just seemed to, to really stick with uh, with people, both at the time it was released and in generations to come. Of course, Paths of Glory had a sort of, was almost based on two wars in the sense that while it took place during World War I, uh, we clearly were being led, discussing the whole, you know, the movie also tried to make more modern points dealing with the 19, it came out in 1957, so it was right in the middle of the of the Red Scare and, and issues related to a lot of the things that happened during the 50s. So in that sense, uh, it sort of covered both wars. Well, I suppose an imaginative person at the time of uh, Paths of Glory's release, wanting to, to think and interpret it, could have seen an analogy between the possibility of, of all-out destruction of our leaders leading us off the cliff, leading us down the path of, of total destruction uh, because of the, the threat of nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time, could have resulted in, you know, uh, a, a world that, that would not be very familiar to us uh, today. And uh, uh, it's very possible that, that Stanley Kubrick, uh, a very intelligent director, may have had some of this in mind in, in, in making the film. Well, it was also related to the fact of the whole witch hunts that were going on as well, where it was a combination of not only the fear of... Uh, as you say, the uh, 
total destruction, but also the fact that people get were being uh, accused of things and people were being made examples of, and that is such an important aspect of Paths of Glory, where um, it was just pure happenstance of who ended up becoming the uh, participants to be to be tried for uh, the pro- you know the issues and as part of the, the middle part of the film. Right, you know, all sorts of, of, of innocent people can be swept up in a net of suspicion, and uh, it's great when we have a Kirk Douglas character who who is not who is unafraid of standing up and uh, and, and confronting uh, authorities who are abusing their power. So yes, that 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 was was very much part of it. What's now now turning to the World War II chapter? What is very interesting, and this is as opposed to the World War One where. Some of the films that you included in that list in your World War II chapters, chapter, excuse me, were made when the war was actually still going on. Casablanca and Saboteur, and literally Best Years of Our Lives was right after the war ended. It's just in many ways unusual there in the fact that there were films being made during World War II that dealt with the actual war. Um, what were... What were there specific characteristics for those films that you found more interesting because they were actually made while the war was going on? Yeah, I, I would have been very happy to include uh, films from 1917 and 1918, for example, uh, for the World War One chapter. Except that, that none of those films have really they, they may survive physically in, in an archive somewhere, but. They have not really survived in, in the imagination of the American public. Uh, with World War II, on the other hand, you know, there are a number of films made during the war that have, have transcended time. I mean, uh, Casablanca being, being the, the great example. Saboteur is a little bit lesser known, but uh, let me start with, with, with Casablanca, which, of course, is a universally acknowledged classic of uh, uh, filmmaking and a happy accident that it became that way because it was one of those projects where everything just seemed to click somehow. Uh, if you would have cast the movie slightly differently, if, if uh, you know one aspect or another had just been moved around or altered, it may not have been as great a film, and we might not be, be talking of it uh, today in the same way. Uh, Casablanca is not a combat film uh, at all. I mean, the, the, there are guns, guns are fired. I mean, I think twice in the movie, as I'm recalling right now, uh, casualties are very light. A couple of people uh, are killed in this movie, but there's no battle scene. The battle here in this movie has to do with uh, human responsibility, individual responsibility in the time of, of a great conflict. What, what decisions do we make? Uh, what sacrifices are we willing to make if the cause around us is important enough? If the cause that, 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 that we identify with uh, is a good cause, are, are we willing to give something up? Or what decisions can we make to help that cause? And the fact that there's a, you know great chemistry in the movie between the cast, uh, it's also a, a marvelous love story. All these things came together to make it a remarkable film and a movie that reflects upon the, 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 the cost and the decisions of, of, of people during wartime, whether they are of fighting in a physical sense or not. Saboteur was interesting to me as a look at the anxiety on the American war front, particularly in the early years of, of U.S. involvement in the war. 
this movie was, was made in the first month after Pearl Harbor. It was made during a time when uh, Japanese Americans began to be rounded up in uh, the detention camps uh, for fear that there may be fifth colonists or saboteurs among them. Uh, the movie doesn't look at the, the Japanese American population, but it, it, it looks at something else that was also of concern because there really were fascist sympathizers in the U.S. Uh, before the war and at this time. There were some sedition trials during uh, World War II, in, in fact. Uh, you know, right here in Milwaukee, where, where I am right now, there was the, uh, the Great Center for the German-American Bund, a ethnic German-based uh, Nazi organization. So people of this kind were in America at that point. Their, their loyalty could be questioned. And there was the concern that groups of this sort might try to undermine the, the war effort at home. So that movie, I think, in, in, in a very Alfred Hitchcock uh, kind of you know, dramatization, um, you know, I think brings to life the, 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 the fears that, that many Americans had about the war front. And you know, maybe because it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie, it's, it's a film that uh, I think certainly film buffs uh, uh, widely admire. As, as I talk to people about my book, I'm, I'm surprised at, at how many people share my enthusiasm for Saboteur as being one of our, our favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. That's interesting. Alfred Hitchcock, many of his films from the 50s and early 60s are the ones these days he's probably most known for. But Saboteur is definitely uh, one of those earlier ones, although not that early, because he was making movies even earlier than that. But uh, that's still, um, I think you're right, is, is still very well known and very uh, revered, for, back, for lack of any other word to use. Yes, one of, one of the, the, the good things about the movie, too, was that, as some Alfred Hitchcock biographers have pointed out, it has kind of a mediocre cast. <laughs> In a way, Robert Cummings is not Cary Grant or not... Uh, one of the uh, Jimmy Stewart, one of the great actors that Hitchcock would later work with, but there's something about him that was so everyman American at that time. And Priscilla Lane, the the, the female protagonist of the movie, I think was very much uh, standing in for an ordinary American woman of of the era. And the casting of it, even though they can, these are not you know people we think of as A-list Hollywood uh, stars of that era. I think the ordinariness of their performances in some way uh, brings to life the era quite well, better maybe than if you would have had an all-star cast. Well, of course, Hitchcock was always particularly interested in showing people in unusual, so-called normal people or everyday people in unusual, getting caught up in unusual situations. So I guess it's not a big surprise that even the casting might have worked the same way. Definitely. And then The Best Years of Our Lives was interesting in that it was probably, you know, one of the first post-war films that immediately had to deal with this whole issue of of what happened to people after the war was over. So in that sense, it's similar to we've seen films like that even more recently with some of the more recent conflicts. But as I say, it, as, as a World War II-era film, it really... Uh, had an interesting uh, way, and it also, though, was very popular. Well, it, it, it without being didactic or heavy-handed, it, it brought together uh, veterans, 
uh, with different experiences, different, uh, different economic and social classes. Uh, all, all returning days know each other, but they all came from the same hometown somewhere in the heartland of America. They encountered one another uh, on the return journey back, and uh, the movie, which is you know, quite a long movie for that uh, era, uh, explored their experiences in, in some depth. Uh, it's also interesting because of Harold Russell, the uh, uh, returning sailor, in the, who played the returning sailor in the movie, uh, who lost his hands uh, during a Japanese attack on his aircraft carrier. Um, you know, seeing a, a, uh, a real you know, handicapped veteran, returning veteran, uh, portraying a role like that well, was uh, highly unusual at that, at that time. And it, it spoke to the fact that 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 uh, you know people had the awareness that that many people returned home uh, and and lost a great deal physically and maybe emotionally uh, from their service during the war. There there were, there were a lot of re- returning veterans in in in, in movies uh, made in the late 1940s. Many films noir had you know some indication of the the the, the psychological damage that some people may have in, experienced during the war uh best years of our lives though i think you know of all of the, these films did the, the the best job of uh putting the issue at the center of the film and of uh, of creating characters that uh we can still very much sympathize with and relate to all these years later and then of course what i've probably the most interesting in the sense of of, of what Clint Eastwood did were the two of Iwo Jima films, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. Can you talk a little bit about what was unusual? I mean, I'm reasonably sure most people know what the stories were for those two films, but could you give us some background of uh, what Eastwood tried to do with these two films? Well, they, they are kind of joined to, together because they refer to the same uh, um, battle, the, the Battle of Iwo Jima. Uh, letters from Iwo Jima, I, I, I don't know if this is entirely unique, but it was certainly unusual for a director to do a sympathetic film about one's wartime enemy, where you're, you're not simply depicting the enemy as the enemy, uh, you know, much of demonizing the enemy or stereotyping the enemy, but you are actually um, putting the audience in the position of the, the side to which our country fought, uh, bringing out the humanity, the, the various problems, getting beyond all of the stereotypes, which, uh, you know, ma- many movies about World War II made during World War II uh, Aired greatly on the side of stereotyping uh, America's enemies, and, and you can look back now and, and, and understand that there were many reasons for this. I mean, many of those movies were very much intended to to boost morale on the home front, uh, to to build the fighting spirit. Uh, there, there wasn't room in, in a life or death struggle, perhaps, to be nuanced about the people we were fighting with, but. Certainly, all these years later, there is room for this, and uh, Clint Eastwood did a great job with that with letters uh, from Iwo Jima. Flags of Our Fathers, uh, you know, refers to the way in which uh, the the news media, with the cooperation of the authorities, can uh, distort uh, the depiction of history in the making, 
um, the, the way that, that, that heroism can can become a media circus and the toll that may may take you know on, 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 on ordinary soldiers doing their job who suddenly are thrust into this unwanted uh, celebrity status. It's a movie, of course, has to do with the, the famous uh, uh, raising of the American flag by, by, by a small team of Marines uh, on a hill on Iwo Jima. Right. Of course, then we now get to the Cold War, which, unlike the first two chapters, was most much of the you know films that you included in the, this chapter are not necessarily about specific conflicts because the Cold War wasn't a conflict. Uh, granted, it included the Korean War and Vietnam, as you rightly include in your in in the book, but it was just a different type of war, as the name implies. Um, so, how did you work to try to find decide which films you felt or the two of you felt best described or best represented the Cold War? Well, we we included Manchurian Candidate. I mean, which touches on on Korea at the beginning of the war, but uh, mostly it has to do with issues on the American home front during the Cold War. Later on, there's a a character who's a stand-in for Senator McCarthy. Uh, There is the question, again, of of, of the psychological damage that may be uh, experienced by, by veterans of war. There was a great deal of, uh, of discussion in the American news media and among the American public about brainwashing, uh, the, the idea that, that, that many American prisoners of war uh, were subjected to uh, forms of, of uh, mental psychological manipulation by their Korean or Chinese captors uh, during the Korean War. And, of course, this coincided with, with a period in which, which uh, agencies of the U.S. government, particularly the CIA, were experimenting with the use of drugs such as LSD to see whether they, they might be useful in, in, in times of war uh, as a way of, of extracting information from prisoners or for other purposes. So uh, the, the movie did, did a, I think, a, a marvelous job of, of, uh, of uh, you know, dramatizing uh, this with uh, it, it, it was probably you know, the movie came out in 1962 uh, after you know really the, the worst of the McCarthy era had, it was several years behind us at that point so there was enough distance that Hollywood could feel comfortable uh, essentially satirizing the abuses of the McCarthy era while at the same time poking fun at uh, at the communist adversaries uh, of the U.S. during the Cold War it, uh, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Uh, played a great role in this film uh, at the height of his career uh, in movies. So I think it's a it's a great film and uh, far better than than, than the, the remake that came out about ten years ago, uh, which most people have forgotten about. But then, then we also yeah. Uh, then there was the the war that fortunately never happened, the nuclear conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, I represented them with two movies, uh, Dr. Strangelove, which was a, a very dark satire of the mentality that could lead to, to uh, a nuclear engagement between the two countries, and Failsafe, which is a much more sober uh, look at the possibility of a, of a, of a mishap 
uh, causing nuclear war between the two nations. Very different movies about the same uh, subject. Right. One's comedic and the other one's serious, but they both cover the exact same subject. And it's interesting that uh, Dr. Strangelove, of all the films that you did in the book, it's the one that's probably the closest to a true comedy. And yet, at the time it came out, I'm sure... (laughs) Uh, it, there were probably still many people who weren't as didn't find it particularly as funny as as probably nowadays. I think today, uh, most of the films, if not all the films on your list, hold up well. But Doctor Strangelove definitely still holds up well, and it's it was great to see that film. It, it's great to watch that film over and over again as time up, when you have time. It's just worth it to watch it regularly. Well, and and easier to laugh uh, with the movie now than in nineteen. 19- uh... 64. I, I, I think it may, it may have taken a little bit of courage uh, the, the first time and the, this film appeared in movie theaters uh, because the, this was only, after all, you know, very soon after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So people sometimes toss around, you know, daring filmmaking, uh, courageous act by, by Hollywood. Well, you know, Dr. Strangelove was truly a courageous film. Uh, both by the director Stanley Kubrick and and by the the, the film industry for releasing it at, at that time. And interestingly, uh, I mean, I, I think that if, if you ask most people today about Failsafe and Doctor Strangelove, Doctor Strangelove has really very much eclipsed Failsafe to a large degree. Uh, I, I wanted to include Failsafe kind of bracketing it alongside of Doctor Strangelove because of the comparison, the contrasting aspects of these two movies. Uh, both of them very fine films, uh, you know, looking at the, 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 the possible uh, disaster of a nuclear Armageddon uh, in, in very different ways. And the, the satirical way of looking at it is the one that has, has uh, survived best in, in the popular imagination. Yet Dr. Failsafe still shows up on television on the cable channels occasionally. And it, it does, and, and George Clooney had a, a made-for-TV remake of it back in the year 2000, which was actually you know not too bad. Right. He took it a recall. different way, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it definitely uh, was worth, and it, it's definitely worth seeking out as well. But uh, yeah, Failsafe, especially when it, get, when it gets closer and closer to the end and you just keep thinking, where is it going, it's just... So it definitely still holds up in many ways, even though it's not something that we regularly think about today as far as a possible a possibility. So right. that, I, I also included from, from Russia. With yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask about was your decision to include a James Bond film and probably the most Cold Warish of all the James Bond films. Yes, I mean, I mean the, the early James Bond films, you know, the, the previous James Bond film, Dr. No, the first one, does not mention the Cold War or communism. Uh, the the, the, the uh, malevolent character in the movie is, is oriental, and, and one could, could suggest that, that, it, that Dr. No stood in for mainland China at that time, and if you wanted to go there. But uh, somehow, you know, the James Bond movies, the earliest ones, were part of the, 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 the culture of the Cold War. Uh, John F. Kennedy was on record as being a great fan of the Ian Fleming novels, for example. I mean, there was a great deal of attention being paid, uh, to the, these movies in that way at the time of their release. And, and what I found fascinating in, in, in doing the research for this book was Ian Fleming's, uh, service in British intelligence during World War II and the way in which, you know, 
many of the things that he saw and uh, encountered in that service found their way into his fiction, which then in turn found their way into at least the, the, the earliest James Bond films before they, they went way over the top with invisible motor cars and the things that uh, we remember from uh, more recent decades. Right. And what's interesting is that um, the one difference made from the book, the book is really the Russians, uh, yeah. because it was made before Ian Fleming invented Spectre. But uh, in the movie, they updated it because he had to include, to, to, to sort take it away from the uh, exact Russian theme, but it was still Russian, it's still important. And in the whole issue of... Uh, spies and the importance of uh, of how you need to how the cold war and the british and all the different european countries were were important as far as the cold war as well yeah i mean i i think that as as i novelist go john le Carre is, is is a much greater literary figure than ian fleming and you know many john le Carre novels have been turned into movies over the years too but uh, certainly, the James Bond franchise is is enormous. You know, it, it, uh, its roots are in the Cold War. So I think that that many people may forget about that. That you know where, where this all came from. And yes, in, in in their way, they were these movies were maybe in a kind of funhouse way, perhaps. But in 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 a way, they were reflecting the the atmosphere of espionage the the, the moral twilight that uh, espionage can 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 lead to and uh, you know uh, I, I I included it in, in part you know because I wanted to have a little bit fun with the book uh, <laughs> putting James Bond in there seemed to add a slightly lighter touch to it but uh, yes I I think that even the early James Bond movies do have something to tell us about uh, public attitudes during that time. Then, of course, Apocalypse Now, and what is interesting uh, in many ways is that, first off, Vietnam as a subject post-war did not, movies didn't appear right away, and Apocalypse Now was probably the most bombastic of all the Vietnam movies that came out. Uh, It also has probably the most, well, the most tormented history of all movies. many of the films on your list as to what uh, Coppola went through just to make it in the first place and all the troubles that between changing um, main, changing casts at the very beginning and having to deal with uh, illnesses and issues in the Philippines during the filming. It was definitely a film that often gets compared to a war all by itself. Well, logistically, making that movie was not unlike an amphibious invasion of a, a enemy-held territory. Uh, yeah, it, 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 was, it was made under great duress. There was actually a, a documentary uh, footage shot during the making of the movie that came out uh, during the late 1980s, I believe, uh, showing uh, you know some of the problems uh, that, that Coppola and his cast and crew faced in the making of the movie. But of course, one of the, of the things, too, is, is the, the idea of making this sort of movie in the first place at that time, because there was a reluctance in the immediate aftermath of uh, the end of American involvement in Vietnam 
for Hollywood to venture into that topic. There, there was one, you know, if you want to call it, significant Vietnam War movie made during the war, the Green Berets, the John Wayne film, which, uh, you know, do a great deal of flack for uh, being a pro-war movie, uh, being released at a time when public sentiment against the war was growing. Uh, as a film, Green Berets was very much in uh, the same mold as many of the John Wayne World War II movies. Uh, it, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not whatever one one's opinion about the war. It, it, it's it's not a great film, not a, not not a lasting accomplishment in in cinema. Uh, with the end of the war, I think there there was this period of almost traumatic shock on the part of the American public. I mean, you know, like disbelief. This this war had had done a great deal of, of, of damage. It seemed you know here you know at, at home by dividing the country the way that it did. Uh, casualties were relatively high. Uh, there were problems and difficulties with the returning veterans of that war. Uh, it was a loss of faith to America uh, on one level that this war ended the way it did. And so how do you make popular entertainment, which is the business Hollywood is in after all, out of something like that? So there was a reluctance to, 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 to do this, to, to engage Vietnam as a subject matter. And uh, Coppola was able to overcome that. He was a, a rising young talent at that point, and uh, he had grand ideas about the possibilities of cinema as an art form as well as a form of entertainment. And uh, he, he made a movie that, uh, you know, the, a couple of years ago, several years ago, there, there was a longer version of it released, both theatrically and then on, on DVD and Blu-ray, I'm sure by now, too. Uh, which makes Apocalypse Now even longer than the original release. And I don't think that the additional material in any way benefits the film. I, I prefer watching the original version of it, which, uh, you know, you know, tells the story of the, the, the madness of the war is what it is very good at depicting. Uh, the, you know, questionable assumptions on the part of, uh, some military leaders, the, 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 the difficulty of, of fighting a war in a very alien environment, uh, fighting with or against people that uh, Americans did not uh, fully understand in many cases. So the, the, the sense of, of, of unease in the midst of a, of a very alien environment, I think, is what Apocalypse Now uh, does best. Yeah, it's interesting. Most of the most interesting extra scenes that were added in all deal with, or there's a long scene dealing with a bunch of uh, French people who obviously had been living there since the French first, uh, over, you know, were part of the, when Vietnam was a colony. And that's probably the, the major extra scene that got included in the, re, in the additional part. But it does sort of completely change the tone of the film when that scene occurs. Uh, yes, and, 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 and I wonder why it, it, it was there. I mean, I remember reading somewhere the, the, the theory that, uh, you know, this is basically a ghost scene, <laughs> that they, they, these people were, were dead already, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the uh, swift boat wandered into the, a metaphysical realm there, perhaps, 
you know, what, what, what was that, what was Coppola thinking of, uh, you know, by, by wanting to include this in the film? Um, you know, I, there, there was quite a bit of conflict, you know, in, between the, the, the screenwriter, Milius, and, 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 and Coppola, who had very, you know, different ideas, it seems, about not only the movie, but about the war itself. Um, and Milius, uh, uh, tends to be more pro-war in his attitudes. And, and and Coppola uh, not so, and I, I think that, that 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 what you end up with, which perhaps makes it a great film, is that uh, I, I, it's difficult to say that Apocalypse Now takes sides precisely. I mean, you you can get lost in endless interpretations of of, of what this movie is trying to tell us. I mean, it's, it's it doesn't make its point easily and and plainly. And maybe because of that, it, it has survived the way it has, not just because of several spectacular scenes, but because the movie seems to give us something to think about without necessarily telling us what to think about it. In memory serves, I think Milius was involved in Red Dawn. Right. <laughs> yeah, a very, a very different kind of a kind of a, a war film. Right, and late Cold War. Um, so then that brings us to the most current period in the book, The War on Terror. Probably, in some ways, uh, the most frightening films, because for those of us who are, you know, we're living through the era, maybe in a way that some of the earlier films would have been like for the people who were, um, you know, around when those films came out. But the, the three films you mentioned, United 93, The Hurt Locker, and Zero Dark Thirty, um, they're definitely much different from what we're used to seeing with war films. Uh, there's, you know, they seem raw and, f and even more frightening because of that. In fact, United 93, I've seen it once and I don't know that I ever want to see it again. <laughs> well, yes, it, it, it's well, what United 93 does very well is to remind us of the morning of September 11th. 2001, because nobody understood or knew what was going on at that point. There was a great deal of confusion, and the movie captures that confusion, the confusion in, in air traffic control, certainly the confusion of, aboard the, the, the doomed airliner. And, you know, I mean, I remember seeing the second tower go down live on TV, and it was just, you know... An incredible sense of chaos in the air, and 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 the 993 gets that. But also, uh, there are no you know stars in this movie, and I think the movie benefits from that as well because it, it's to say if Tom Hanks had been one of the the cast members and he was among the passengers in the 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 uh, cabin of of uh, Flight 93, uh, we as an audience would have fixated on him, we, we would have seen, okay, he, he's the guy who's going to be leading the charge at the cockpit, okay. And uh, we didn't have that as an audience to latch onto. Again, we were looking at a bunch of people who look very much like uh, ordinary middle-class Americans on a plane ride. I mean, I think that, 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 that it's, the ability for us to relate to the people uh, on, on screen was, was enhanced by this. Um, so, yes, United 93 and the other two movies were the result in some way of, of, of trends in filmmaking that allowed for, 
a greater mobility, the ability to to shoot quickly and on the fly, and to you know the the, the greater willingness of of the public or certain segments of the public anyway to suspend the star system a little bit more uh, to look at. Uh, uh, darker topics done without, uh, you know, much pretense to the, the glossiness of old Hollywood. Uh, Hurt Locker is a film about the, or set during the American occupation of Iraq. Uh, it, it focuses on, on, on a small squad of men who are disposing of uh, IEDs. The movie never refers to politics. To, the, to strategy even, to the reason these the soldiers are there is not even alluded to. They are simply there. You know, the movie puts us in their boots, uh, I think, very well. Uh, it, it puts us in a situation where, you know, these soldiers are, you know, in a life or death uh, struggle to survive. They don't know where the, the shots are going to come from. They don't know if some object, innocuous thing laying along the side of the road is going to blow up. And if they suspect it is, it's going to be a very tricky, dangerous thing to to uh, disarm that weapon. Um, Zero Dark Thirty is a little bit different, even though it's by the, the same director as Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow, because there the movie got into some controversial uh, territory. Which is very timely at the moment. <laughs> still keeps getting brought up, right? Yeah, the, the, the Senate report on uh, enhanced interrogation. Zero Dark Thirty is all about uh, enhanced interrogation or torture, and it seems to to take the position that useful information was gleaned from uh, the use of torture, and that in fact, as I, as I understood the movie when it was released, that that the uh, decision by President Obama to uh, pull back from some of these techniques may even have slowed the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And this uh, thesis of the film generated something of a firestorm from all ends at the time of its release, and the topic certainly has not gone away at all. I mean, right now we're, we're, we're hearing yet another you know wave of uh, debate and uh, and controversy over uh the morality of uh of using techniques of this kind whether you want to call them torture or something else and the usefulness the you know the utilitarian value if any of, of this and and the, the, there are highly placed people you know on both sides of the debate who have completely opposite points of view on this and it's interesting as you said uh hurt locker in particular um you don't have to work. I mean, just like some of the other films, we don't get into why the war is going on. It's just the story of what's going on during the war. And sometimes that's the best way to handle the issue. And the fact that you may or not may or agree or disagree with why of the war doesn't change the fact of what's actually happening and, or what happened and the issues faced by people like some of the uh, characters. Right. Well, well, one interesting thing, the, the um, publisher of the book, the Thomas Books University of Nebraska Press, suggested that uh, uh, for the war on terror chapter, there, there, we, have, we have dates you know, to, to correspond with every conflict chapter in the book, and we have two, 
I had 2001 through question mark, and they said, hmm, well, it, you know, this was, I think, uh, three, two, two years ago. Why, why, why don't we, we, we end it uh, now? Uh, President Obama made a speech recently saying the war on terror is over. But, uh, you know, shortly after that, we experienced the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, we now today have a resurgence of, of, of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism going on. We have ISIS. And I'm very glad that I held my ground and said, no, keep the question mark there. Because we don't really know at this point when the war on terror is really over. I mean, certainly perhaps a phase of the war on terror had ended by the, the, the time the manuscript of the book was uh, being completed. But uh, I, I think we would all agree that the war on terror is going on right now as we speak. To say nothing of the fact is that uh, um, part of it is the fact that uh, it depends on how you define the war on terror. Um, there can be there can be terror, as we know, from other phases. It's not just going to be the most obvious ones that came out of September 11th, but there's other terrorist activities that still go on that have nothing to do with those topics and, and will continue to go on. So... Unfortunately, the war on terror is something I think we will live with probably forever in some way, shape, or form. It's just a matter sometimes of who are the perpetrators, but it's still something that uh, has been going on for a long, long time. We don't even have to talk about uh, just this more current period. Right. I mean, I, I always felt that, that, that coining the term war on, on terror was a misnomer because, I mean, there could be many wars on terror, because terrorism doesn't come in one flavor or as one brand, as I think you're, you're pointing out, but, uh, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland during the 1970s and 80s, you know, you know the, the terrorism was prevalent there. Sri Lanka, you know, went through a period of 10, 20 years of, of, of a, a terrorist-led uh, uh, civil war. I mean, there, there, are ter there is terrorism going on in, 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 in many parts of the world under the auspices of one cause or another, and the United States happens to be focused on, on one particular sort of terrorism because of 9-11, but, uh, you know, to use the term war on terror, I mean, it's a very encompassing uh, phrase, and, uh, you know, I think it's much too broadly. What other films that you didn't get a chance to include? Are there any films that maybe were just below the cut? that you thought are worth mentioning as being particularly good examples of war films? Well, yeah, I mean, be, be, because we, we, we put uh, the Cold War chapter together the way we did, if we would have had a Vietnam War chapter, which was the idea I had at the beginning of the project, we would have gotten into a few other movies like Full Metal Jacket, for example. Well, that, that would have been the third Stanley Kubrick right. films in one book, which might be... You know, I mean, of course, he was a great director, so I, I could defend that. But, uh, uh, yes, I would have included that under Vietnam. Uh, I might have thought about Deer Hunter for another Vietnam uh, movie. Um, there, there, there's certainly World War II was, was probably the, 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 the great movie for you know, inspiring, uh, the great, great, great war, rather, for inspiring movies. Uh, I, I, I have not done an exact tabulation, but I'm willing to make an educated guess that there are more movies about World War II than about any other single war in human history. I'm sure that's true. 
Yeah, and, and, and there certainly are, are some other fine examples of, of World War II movies that we could have gotten into. One of the, the, the very curious things in, in thinking about the Cold War period was the Korean War. There, there are you know a handful of very good Korean War movies that, that, that I enjoy seeing, and but none, none of them really ever captivated the public imagination in a, in a big way. The, the biggest movie uh, about the Korean War, which is a, a, a Toko Ri, is a movie that I watched with the idea of possibly including it, but I, I, I frankly thought it was a terrible movie and very kind of schlocky in many respects. It had some good uh, footage from uh, shot from an aircraft carrier showing the, the comings and goings of combat planes. That, that was good, but the the storyline and the, the, the grafting of a conventional Hollywood love story onto this. I mean, uh, I, I don't think that that, that that movie has survived the test of time very well. And I don't think that that, that uh, it uh, really fired up the imagination of, uh, of moviegoers at the time it was released either. So what I'm getting to here is that we, we have spoken quite a bit in recent years of Korea as the Forgotten War. And more efforts are being made in recent years to try to remember the surviving veterans of that war who, you know, did, did not get acknowledged in the same way that returning World War II veterans were, and, and so on. And I think that, that perhaps there, there are a number of reasons why the Korean War became the Forgotten War, but one of them might be that there was never a great Korean War movie that, that really captured the imagination and the memory of, uh, of the public. And the only one I can think of when I was looking at when I was looking at the chapter that obviously you didn't really have a film that was the Korean War other than uh, the aspects of Manchurian Candidate. The only one I could come up with was Mash, and um, that's a you know it's a straightforward almost straightforward comedy that movie, but it did take place during the Korean War, but it had a different obvious different reasoning behind why it was being made. Yeah, and, and I think that that Robert Alton was using Korea as a stand-in for Vietnam. Uh, I would argue that at that point that really though Mash was was set ostensibly in the Korean War, it was really you know spoofing the Vietnam conflict. And I think that many many people in the audience at that time saw it that way. So I thought about Mash actually. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we kind of kicked that one around a little bit, but. Uh, that got left on the cutting room floor because, well, you know, was it really a Korean War movie after all anyway, even though that's when it was supposed to be taking place? Yeah, right. And same people said the same thing about the television show, although the phone television show lasted well past the end of the war. Um, but, yeah, the, the movie definitely, because it came out right in the middle when protesting started to really take on even more. Yes, well, and at that time, too, when Hollywood probably would have been loath to do a, a, a Vietnam War movie. So, well, no, it's not a Vietnam War movie. It's a, it's a Korean War movie, okay. But uh, uh, I, I, I think that, 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 that many people understood it as being uh, a satire in some way of Vietnam. So what are your plans going forward? What are you working on now, or have you come up with something new to be writing about? Well, I'm under deadline right now. I have to, to complete it by the end of the year. A, a, a book called Secret Societies in American History. I am really a few pages, literally, from completing the manuscript of that. Uh, 
That's a book that looks at uh, a variety of secretive uh, covert organizations, everything from the mafia to the Ku Klux Klan to the Triad to uh, Heaven's Gate, and some some of them, you know, more obviously religious uh, calls, some of them more criminal or political in their orientation, but the, the, the link between all of them is that they, they were operating uh, you know below the surface they, they, they kept secrets they, they, the, uh, uh, the the membership role was secret or the, the practices were secret in some ways and uh, it's a it, it's a look at, at, at what impact if any you know these groups had on, on on the country we live in and and what I found is that many of them you know did have a significant uh, Frankly, uh, the History Channel on cable makes the most out of those secret societies. So. They they do, but then but there, there are a lot of really, of really bad, uh, right. <laughs> erroneous. Uh, I mean, one of the, of the the challenges were of writing that kind of book was to sift through, um, you know, false claims, and uh, on the one hand and. On the other hand, historians who, because of all the false claims, want to pretend that these organizations even never existed at all, or that they really, you know, were utterly insignificant. And in, in many cases, the truth is, is somewhere in the middle, of course. Right. So you're the anti-Dan Brown in this book. <laughs> Definitely, yes. <laughs> well, I really appreciated talking to you about this. As I say, uh, it was a nice way of looking at the topic. I mean, obviously, we've seen books on, on war films before, but... You took a good uh, way of reaching, uh, of picking out the films you did, and I, like I say, it's an incredibly great selection of films, and and I think not only is it worth reading about them, but every one of them should be worth, you know, are worth watching again. And then the good thing is, in these days of of home video and other methods, that every one of them, as far as I can tell from looking at it, I'm sure are all available for people to watch again. So. Yes, they're all very accessible. Right, which is another good reason to include them on your list. Uh, accessible films means people are more likely to study them. Um, but as I say, this was uh, an enjoyable conversation, and like I say, I hope uh, you continue to have success uh, with your books and better get your deadline. We've only got two weeks left to go in the year. Okay, well, thank you very much. You have a good day. Thanks a lot. You too. I hope you found my conversation with David Lurson interesting and that you seek out the book, War on the Silver Screen, Shaping America's Perception of History. In addition, all the films David and Glenn included in their book are readily available from a number of video sources. They are all worth looking for. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.